All right, so how many of you honestly, when you see a baby dedication like that, you kind of sit there and go, I'm so glad I'm beyond that stage. All right. Isn't it interesting how God just prepares us for different seasons of life and how you can't wait to have that little baby and then you have little baby and that stage is really great. And, you know, then you get to the, the, the point where you have teenagers and and Diana and I say all the time that we have enjoyed, and I mean this seriously, not that there haven't been challenges along the way. Our oldest is uh, 22 and going to get married this summer. We have enjoyed every season of their lives thus far. We really have. Every season has different challenges, right? But we've enjoyed all of that. But I can honestly say, I sit there and go, those babies are cute. That's awesome. I can't wait to have grandkids someday but I'm so glad that I slept so well last night, right? And we love kids uh, at Northwest. Children are a blessing from the Lord, and we celebrate that. And as Jerry said, a baby dedication is not part of salvation. It's not a, a spiritual act necessarily for the children, but for parents, it's saying, hey, we take this seriously, and we're going to do everything that we can by God's help to raise these kids as they ought to be raised. And in the kind of world that we're living in, we think that's incredibly, incredibly important. And I'm so glad that we have children and we are doing this every six or eight weeks. We have baby dedications because we got new babies. And that's awesome. And as Jerry said, we're just tremendously excited about those of you that have such a, a burden for orphans all over the globe. We've had families in our church that have adopted. And that's just such a, an incredible thing. Not just as you adopt those children, but a great picture of the fact that that's exactly what God's done with us in adopting us uh, into uh, his family. So if you don't like children, uh, probably shouldn't hang around Northwest very long, all right? Because we love kids. We're serious about our ministry to kids and to parents as we encourage you in that, uh, in that process. Well, when the NC State Wolfpack defeated Villanova last week, <clears throat> Piccolo player Roxanne... Chalifu made it very clear that she was not simply a fan. And as the buzzer sounded and her team lost to the Wolfpack, she was overcome with emotion. Unless you've been living under a rock this last week, you have no doubt seen her picture, you've seen video footage, the camera locked in on her tears coming down her cheek as she played her piccolo in the band there with uh, the rest of the Villanova students. And she said in an interview that I saw, she said, I saw myself on the Jumbotron, and all I could think of was, I don't want my dad to see me crying. <laughs> and I thought, girl, are you crazy? I mean, Villanova, they're supposed to be really strong academically, right? I'm thinking, I don't think she gets it. Millions and millions of people just saw you cry. But what she did demonstrate as that camera went down on her face and you saw her playing away that piccolo and you saw those tears coming down her cheeks was that she was not simply a fan. She was a fanatic. She was serious about her team. And I want you to know this morning as we start out that there is a very, very, very big difference between an ordinary fan and a fanatic. And it's true in sports it's true, obviously, all the way throughout the NCAA tournament. I guarantee you there are some of you who are Kentucky fans for the first time ever in your life because you looked down at the brackets and you went, wow, you know, they're like, what, 34-0 and to start out the tournament. Now they're 38-0, I think. And you go, I'm a Kentucky fan. Yeah, you are just that. You are a fan. 
And when they lose, you will no longer be a fan. Because eventually, well, maybe not this season, but eventually they will lose. There's a big difference between a fan and a fanatic. It's true in sports. And it was also true on Palm Sunday almost 2,000 years ago. If you didn't know when you came in this morning and you thought this was Easter Sunday and so you thought you'd show up to church this morning, if you didn't know, today is Palm Sunday. And this is the day that we celebrate the triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem exactly one week before his resurrection. And I want you to know this morning, we've got the only video footage of that first triumphal entry. Watch this. The king has returned. The prophecies fulfilled. The years of longing are over. The king has returned. And now all will be made right. Amidst shouts of praise and tears of joy, the pleading for justice, the cries for our enemies' defeat. The king has returned. The king who was driven from his land as an infant, who spent his first years as a refugee, who understands pain and suffering. But this king is not who we were looking for. This king brings justice not over our enemies, but in the midst of our enemies. He brings peace, not in our land, but in our souls. He is the answer to the prayer we did not know we were praying. The King has returned. Long live the King. I want you this morning as we start to think about that, to think about the fans that you just saw on the screen. As Jesus enters into Jerusalem 2,000 years ago, it's the end of a long journey that he's been on, and he knows what this journey, he knows where this journey ends, that this journey is going to end at the cross. In fact, that's why he came to this earth. He knew when he came, he was the God-man. He knew when he came how it would end, that he would eventually give his life for us. Luke chapter 19 and verse 10 says that he came to save the lost. And now was the time, this was the place. Palm Sunday marks the start of what we refer to as the Passion Week. It's the final seven days of Jesus' earthly ministry. Palm Sunday is literally the beginning of the end of Jesus' work here on earth. And you know, very often we, we skip over Palm Sunday and we get right to Easter Sunday with the crucifixion and the resurrection and obviously those events are very central to the gospel message. But it's also important, I think, to understand how Jesus was greeted when he entered in to Jerusalem and why people responded the way that they did. And I think you'll understand a little bit more about that as we look at this passage in Matthew chapter 21. If you have your Bibles, I'd love for you to turn there. We're going to look at the first 11 verses. All the Gospels record these events. We're going to be in Matthew's account here in chapter 21 and verses 1 to 11. You know, we don't have a king in America. At least we don't have someone that we call king. We've got people who think that they're kings, but we don't have anybody that we call king. 
There was the king, but uh, we think he died back in the 70s, although some people, they still say that Elvis is alive and well. I saw a guy this last week in a store and I thought, that is him. If, if he's still alive, that, that's him. But we don't, we don't have a king and today is Palm Sunday and we, we celebrate the, the, the coronation of a king, but we don't have any idea, most of us as Americans, what it looks like for a king to be coronated. A coronation is a very majestic event. No expense is spared as that king begins his, his rule. And in 1838, a crown was made for Queen Victoria. I found this to be fascinating. The crown was made out of huge rubies and sapphires, and in the middle of all those jewels was a 309-carat diamond. Now, ladies, look at your hand if you... If you're married or you're engaged, look down at that little diamond that you see there. And imagine, it's probably a thousand times bigger was this diamond that was right in the middle of all of these rubies and sapphires. The historical record says that the, that the scepter which she held in her hand had a diamond on the very top of it that was 516 and a half carats. There was no expense that was spared in order that the king or the queen, that their coronation might be celebrated. And I would assume, while I don't know a lot about kings and queens, I would assume that that is how a king, that is how a queen should be celebrated. I've always thought that it was interesting, and maybe you do too, that that's exactly the opposite of how Jesus was celebrated, how he was celebrated as the king. You'll remember the humble circumstances into which Jesus was born. He was born to a little peasant teenage girl who gave birth in a, in a stable for animals. And when he was born, they, they wrapped him in cloths and they laid him down in a little manger where, where animals used to feed from. And you say to yourself, is that, how a, is that how a king should come? I mean, shouldn't a king be celebrated with, with diamonds and rubies and, and, and sapphires? And instead, his birth and his coming into Jerusalem as the king is marked by humble circumstances. For the last several weeks leading up to this particular passage, Jesus has been ministering throughout Galilee. And he leaves Galilee and he goes east of the Jordan River up to an area that we know as Perea. And he did there what he's done everywhere that he's gone to. He has healed people. He's presented his credentials as the king. And after he heals two blind men in Jericho and that little man that we talked about a couple of weeks ago named Zacchaeus comes to faith in him, he begins his final journey into Jerusalem. It was the beginning of the end of his earthly ministry. As I said earlier, he knew why he had come. And so he tells his disciples, hey, this is, this is what's going to happen. This is what's going to take place. And all along at different times in his ministry with them, he's telling them, this is why I've come. But for whatever reason, they haven't paid attention. He knows why he's going to Jerusalem just now. He tells them that they're going to head to Jerusalem for Passover, but they have absolutely no idea that he indeed is going to be the Passover lamb. And while they don't get it, he does. He understands. 
And when we come to this passage in Matthew chapter 21, Jesus is moving uh, along this road to Jerusalem and there are multitudes of people that are moving there as well. These were pilgrims that were on their way to Jerusalem to celebrate Passover. There are masses of people in the city. In fact, a census that takes place just a few years later would estimate that at that particular time, there were no fewer than 2.6 million people that were in the city and no fewer than 260,000 little lambs that would be sacrificed. That was the scene. Now, there were lots of people in the crowd who no doubt had had a little bit of interaction with Jesus. They had maybe some of them seen him perform miracles. Many who were probably familiar with his story of raising Lazarus from the dead. And so here they were. They were all moving together to Jerusalem to the Passover and they had no idea. Think about it for just a moment. You're walking alongside of Jesus, this man that you think that you've heard of, that he's a great prophet, and you have absolutely no idea that indeed he is the Passover lamb himself. That in just a few short days from now, he is going to give his life. He's going to shed his innocent blood for, for, for their sin, for our sin. Many, many people in the crowd, but they have absolutely no idea who Jesus really is. Look at Matthew chapter 21, verse 1. It says, Now when they drew near to Jerusalem, they came to Bethpage to the Mount of Olives. From other accounts in the Gospels, we understand that Jesus had been here for a couple of days, and he's probably staying with his friend Lazarus and his two sisters, Mary and Martha. This family was very supportive of Jesus' ministry. He also obviously wanted to see Lazarus and celebrate what, what had happened in his life. And so as they enter Bethpage, Jesus gives instructions to his two disciples. It says, and Jesus said to his disciples, saying to them, go into the village in front of you, and immediately you're going to find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, the Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what had been spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. And you read that and you go, what in the world? Nobody rides a donkey at a coronation. Would you want to do that? Up until just a few months ago, there was an infamous donkey in northwest Cary. Did you ever see him? He was right up on Green Level Church Road. Did you? Anybody ever seen him? I don't know whatever happened to him. God rest his animal soul. I don't know whatever happened, but there's a neighborhood that's now there. But if you remember, we've lived out here for several years. You'd come by there, same donkey, always there, right beside a scummy little pond. And I'm talking scummy little pond. Green film covering the pond. And that donkey was always just standing right there. It was like he was a stuffed donkey. But every once in a while, you saw him actually move his head. Very stupid animal, Right? I mean, he didn't have to be there probably. He could have wandered away, but, but there he was. Now, think about it for just a moment. If you ever saw that donkey or you've seen any donkey for that matter, is that the way that you want your king to come riding into a town to announce his kingship on a donkey? Donkeys are, are, are beasts that carry heavy burdens. They're able to do work, but we don't necessarily think that that's how a king would come, that that would be part of a coronation. But about 450 to 500 years prior to Jesus' arrival in Jerusalem, Zechariah said in chapter 9 and verse 9, he prophesied that this is exactly what would happen. That the king would come and he would be humble and he would be mounted on a donkey. 
Now, Jesus must have known the people that owned the donkey. <laughs> Logic tells us that, right? He tells them to go and, and get this donkey and get this colt. And so, verse 6, the disciples went and they did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road. Others cut branches from the trees, and they spread them on the road. And Mark and Luke, Luke both tell us that neither of those animals had ever been ridden. And you say, is that important? It's very important. It was a, a, a sign of, of authority and a real, a real blessing and a real honor to ride on an animal that had never been ridden. It was as if to say, this animal has been saved in particular for you. Now, as I've thought about that, I don't know that there's anything so great about saying, hey, we've saved this donkey just for you. Everybody else jumps on a stallion. Imagine going to a farm and a horse farm and riding horses with your friends, and they say to you, hey, for you, we have saved this donkey. Meet your donkey. And everybody else is on these big horses, and you're on your little donkey, but this donkey had been saved specifically for this purpose. And you say, well, why did they have to take the mother why not just ride the colt? Well, if you've ever been around a donkey, and I try not to stay around donkeys, but if you've ever been around donkey, donkeys, you probably know that they're tough enough to get going and to get going in the right direction anyway, and they're very tough to get going in the right direction if their mother isn't there, and so they took the mother, and if you led the mother, then the colt would follow, and that's exactly what happened. And you say, well, why ride the colt? Why not ride the mother, the, the mother donkey? Well, because the colt is more lowly than his mother. And it's very interesting to me that Jesus, again, seeks the very lowliest of means in order to come into Jerusalem, in order for his coronation as the king. And so the picture is, into the city is coming this mass of humanity. Some have, were already there, some were now coming, and, and in the middle of it all, if you can picture this in your mind, here is Jesus, the King of kings, the Lord of lords. They do not understand who he is. They think he's simply a great prophet, somebody that has come now to deliver them from the tyranny that they're under. Right in the center of this mass of people is Jesus, and he's riding on a donkey. And you can only imagine what Jesus' disciples were thinking. Now, had they been thinking intelligently at that particular moment, they would have gone, this is, how, this is not how we pictured how it was going to be. I mean, we left everything to follow this man. We gave up our businesses. We gave up our occupations. We've, we've done everything in order that we might follow Jesus, and we've enjoyed it for three years, but, but now it's time for payback. It's time to get what's coming to us. There's a reason why we follow him, because he's the king. And they thought for sure now he's going to come into Jerusalem and he's going to establish himself and, and they're going to get what is rightfully theirs. In fact, if you look back in chapter 20, you'll see at the end of the chapter there that two of the disciples are, are kind of trying to posture themselves for who's going to sit on the left and who's going to sit on the right when you establish your kingdom. Like we don't want to be just one of the guys. We want to be right there by the king. And Jesus responds to them at the end of uh, chapter 20, and he said, The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and give his life a ransom for many. Now you think if you're an intelligent person, you just go, well, obviously he's talking about something that I don't understand, right? And kings don't come to serve, they come to be served. And what is it about this give yourself as a ransom for many? 
And so even though Jesus has told them clearly why he came to this world and what was going to happen, they found that hard to accept. After all, look at all the crowds of people. And look what these people are doing. Look at how they're responding. They're embracing Jesus as the king, as the savior. Everything is going just as the disciples would have thought that it was planned. The people were going mad for Jesus. They were excited. They were throwing their coats down upon the ground and cutting branches, and Jesus was walking over them. The disciples had to have thought, this is just the way we pictured it would be. This is awesome. This has been worth it all. It's been worth it to do what we've done for the last three years. And yet there was something that was a bigger plan. Jesus comes into Jerusalem riding on a donkey and that sends a message. It's the fulfillment of that prophecy that everyone was familiar with and yet could not imagine that it was actually being fulfilled. Here's the tragic thing. A lot of our Jewish friends are still in search of that Savior. They know that he's been foretold that one day the Savior would come and they're still looking for him. And what's unfortunate is that there are many in our world who find themselves in the same position. Verse 9 says, And the crowds went before him, and they followed him, and they were shouting, Hosanna to the Son of David! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord! Hosanna in the highest! Our English word comes from the Greek word Hosanna, which comes from a Hebrew phrase, which is Hoshiana, which is found in only one Old Testament passage in Psalm 118, verse 25, it's written, Save us, we pray, O Lord. O Lord, we pray, give us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. John Piper says when he's commenting on this passage that this means save, please. And the picture is, if, if you can look, it's, it's, it's as if somebody pushes you off of a diving board into deep water before you're able to swim. You got that feeling? And you're pushed off of that diving board and you're in that deep water and you come up out of that water and you shout, Hoshiana! That means save me, please. Help me, save me. And over the centuries, the phrase stopped being a cry for help and instead it became a cry for hope and exaltation. It came to mean what you and I would think that we would say when the lifeguard has come to save you. You would shout, Hosanna, which means hooray for salvation. Somebody came to save me, to pull me out of this water. Salvation is here. Here's the tragic thing of the whole story on Palm Sunday. They got the title right, but the mission wrong. The tragic irony being set up is that God was allowing Jesus to rightly be announced as the Savior, as the King, but the salvation that he brought was deliverance from sin and estrangement from God, not from Rome and its political rule over them, and that's not what the people wanted. That was not the salvation that they were seeking after. They thought their greatest need was to be delivered from the tyranny of Rome. And after all, it was Passover week. And why did they celebrate Passover? They celebrated Passover because uh, it was the celebration of the deliverance from Egypt out of bondage. And they couldn't help but think, here is our deliverer. Here is our savior. Here is our king. And he, just like Moses delivered the people out of Egypt, he's going to deliver us 
from the tyranny, from the bondage that we're presently under through Rome. But Jesus had not come for a coronation as the ordinary people thought that he might have, but he came for crucifixion. Verse 10 says, And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up, saying, Who is this? Isn't that a fascinating question? I know it's early on a Sunday morning and you stayed up a little bit too late last night and so you're kind of zoning in and out as I'm talking right now. But that is a fascinating question that these people who have now followed Jesus all the way into Jerusalem are going, hey, who is that anyway? What a fascinating thing. One commentator on this passage said it was like a guy at a party who's having the time of his life and then suddenly says, hey, what are we celebrating? This is a great party. Can you imagine? Some of you go, yeah, when I was in college, I think I went to one of those parties. And uh, you know what I'm talking about, where you just go, what's everybody so excited about? But you've been shouting, you've been getting all excited. It's like the guy that's screaming at the big game, and he's screaming for the right team. But he doesn't know anybody that's on the team at all. Those are Fairweather fans, unlike our Piccolo friend, right? She wasn't a Fairweather fan. I bet she knew every guy's name. She knew all the stats. She knew everything about him. But these people, the fascinating thing about what's being asked here is they've followed him all the way into Jerusalem. And they get into Jerusalem and they look at one another and say, do you know who he is? Because I don't. That's fascinating to me. They didn't see or they couldn't understand who he was and what his purpose was. Some in the crowd think that they know who Jesus is. Look at verse 11. It says, and the crowd said, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. It's interesting that this afternoon you're going to watch the remainder of the teams that will go into the final four. But tonight, tonight is Jesus night. You understand that? On NBC, they're going to show a great movie on the life of Jesus and all the way up to his resurrection. Bill O'Reilly's book, The Killing of Jesus, is going to be shown as a movie tonight. I think it's on the National Geographic channel. Tonight is Jesus Night in America, right? I heard an interview this week from one of the actors in one of the films. I believe he's one of the actors. And, and he said, it's just a great time to celebrate the prophet of love. And I thought, wow, if all he is is the prophet of love, I mean, I'm sure there were a lot of other prophets who were prophets of love, but he was not and is not just simply a prophet of love. He is the savior of mankind. That's who this Jesus is. And what a difference a week makes, by the way. Just days after his triumphal entry into Jerusalem, some of these same people would cry out, crucify him, crucify him. You say, isn't that strange? Well, not if you're a Fairweather fan, right? I mean, I've watched enough football games with people who are all gung-ho about a particular team and all of a sudden things turn against their team and it, it might as well be, crucify them, crucify them. I can't believe, right? You, you've been there. I watched a football game last fall with a, a, a fan of USC. And let me just say, this dude is no Fairweather fan. He is all in. He is a fanatic. The dude paced up and down as his team was playing my team, who eventually beat my team. He is pacing back and forth at my home while I'm sitting there. He's pacing back and forth. And I said, sit down, enjoy the game. Let's watch it. He goes, I can't, I'm too nervous. That is a fanatic, right? 
I mean, I think I'm a fanatic for my team, but I don't pace back and forth. I'm all about laying on the sofa, drinking the drink, and eating the chips. That's what I'm about, right? That's where my fandom ends. This guy's just going back and forth and back and forth because he realized that he was not just simply a fan, but that he was a fanatic. These same people that had thrown down the palm branches, that had thrown their, their coats on the ground, in just a few days they would be yelling, crucify him, crucify him. And they will know little more about him a few days later than they do at this particular point in time. My point is, they are fans. They have no clue. They know nothing about who he is. And so, here's my question as we begin the descent to land the plane this morning. Do you really know who Jesus is? And you say, well, that's really a strange question to ask in the year 2015. We live in the information age. No matter where we are on this globe, we can Google search anything, right? Hey, of course I know who Jesus is. You see, the problem for them was that they knew who he was and they saw his power at work and they heard his words, but they didn't want his kingdom on his terms. They were so earthbound, so materialistic, that all they wanted was whatever was of this world and of this life. They weren't interested in a spiritual kingdom. They didn't care to be confronted about their sins. And today, I would suggest to you that we are in the same position that they were on that first Palm Sunday 2,000 years ago. Today, we don't need a conquering king. We don't need to be saved from the tyranny of an evil government, although I recognize some of you may disagree with that statement. We don't need that. The, the, the situation is totally different. What we're in love with, most of us, and when I ask you the question, do you know who Jesus is? You're in love with your idea of who you want Jesus to be. Now, please hang with me for just a, just a few moments, all right? The landing gear's down. We're coming to a close. Here's some of our views of who we think Jesus is. We want Jesus to be on call when we need him and then kindly stay out of the way when we don't. Is that your idea of Jesus this morning? I mean, be honest, right? I mean, I'm not going to ask you to stand up when I, you know, give each one of these, raise your hand, but, but you know in your heart. Fans want Jesus to be on call and at any other time they want him to stay out of the way. Number two, some of us want to show up and sing about him on Sunday, but then we don't want him to be too upset if we ignore him the rest of the week. We love the whole idea about the Jesus pep rally on Sunday morning that we get to do every seven days. That's pretty fun, right? I mean, we got some good musicians up here and some good singers, and we sing Jesus songs, and that's cool for about an hour and 15 minutes. But then we don't want him to be too upset if we don't really think about him the rest of the week. Is that your idea of Jesus? Some of us want a Jesus who makes life pleasant and trouble-free. That's your idea of Jesus, and if he can do that, you'd sign me up. I'll take him. In fact, give me several of those Jesuses. Just in case one is not available at a particular moment, I'd like a, I'd like a spare. That's who our Jesus is. And lastly, there are some of us who, who want a Jesus who expects nothing of us, but will do whatever we want him to do at our beck and call. I would submit to you this morning that for the average person in the United States of America, in fact, I think the average person in the world today, they like the idea of a Jesus like that. And these people liked the idea of that kind of a Jesus. 
The Jesus who will ride into town, even if he's on a donkey, I'll take him as long as he can be my savior from my present circumstances, from, from the pressures and the disappointments of this world. However, just like them, the same is true for us. Our greatest need is not to be rescued from these disappointments. It's not to be rescued from these pressures that we currently have. Our greatest need is to have a sin debt that we owe, every single one of us owe. Scripture says we were, we were conceived in sin. We were born in sin. We have been separated from God because of our sin. And I would say to you this morning that your greatest need is not a Jesus who will just be at your beck and call to make your life pleasant and easy. Our greatest need is a Jesus who can be the savior from the debt of sin that we owe that we can't possibly pay on our own. That's the Jesus that we celebrate. And so Palm Sunday reminds us that Jesus confronted Jerusalem with a decision. And that same decision is still true for us today. What are you going to do with Jesus, the Messiah? The one who came to pay the debt for your sin. One commentator said that Palm Sunday is the great divider. It puts people into two distinct camps. One believes he's a nice guy. Maybe that's you. You believe he's such a nice guy that you'll come here and you'll, every seven days, you'll, you'll be right here just to kind of celebrate the nice guy. This group follows the crowd and they go along with public opinion. Those are what we would refer to as the fans. The second group is the group that believes that Jesus is the Savior. He is the Son of God. He came to this earth by plan of his heavenly Father to be born of a virgin, to live amongst us just like we live, and ultimately to give his life, to sacrifice his innocent blood on a cross in order that we might be reconciled to the God that we were created to have a relationship with, but because of sin, we don't have that relationship. Those, my friends, are fanatics. They will go all the way because they believe that Jesus is who he says he is. He can do what he says he can do. And they follow him all the way to the foot of the cross. Those are the fanatics. And so my question to you this morning is, are you a fan or are you a fanatic? It's very important to me that, that a week before Easter that you wrestle with that question. And I realize that to some extent, to use the old phrase, I realize I'm preaching to the choir to some extent, right? You say, well, you should go into the street corners in New York City and you should preach this message and just you know, tell people what it means and who Jesus is. Oh, I'm convinced that churches all across America, all across the globe, and I've been in churches on just about every continent, I'm convinced that churches are full of people who are nothing more than fans. They're fans. People who are in love with the idea of their idea of Jesus. And by the way, Jesus warned that there will be a day when fans will be separated from fanatics. He said in Matthew chapter 7, verse 22, that on that day many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? In other words, Jesus, remember when we were at the game? You saw us up in the stands? You remember us? We had the pom-poms. Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. We took off our shirts. We wrote a big letter on our chest. Hey, we were there. You remember us? 
I was on the jumbotron. Those are fans. Jesus said in verse 23, he said, Then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. If you're in love with your idea of Jesus just simply as a fan, and you've never placed your trust in Christ alone as your personal Savior, there will come a day when you as a fan will be separated from fanatics. What we decide about Jesus, by the way, while we live on this planet determines where we spend eternity when we leave this planet. I can't help but think about that plane that went down in the French Alps this week. I don't know how things like that hit you, but for me, it just, I'm not thinking about myself. I'm not thinking about, oh boy, I'm glad I wasn't on that plane. I'm glad I didn't know anybody on that plane. I'm thinking for I'm thinking about the 150 people that were on that plane, that boarded that plane that day, not knowing that in just moments after takeoff, they were going to be plunged into that mountainside and they were going to slip out into eternity. And let me just remind you what I just said. What you determine about who Jesus is now, while you live here, determines ultimately where you spend eternity when you leave this planet. It is not enough just to be a fan and come to church on Easter Sunday. It's about stepping across that line of faith and placing your trust in Christ alone to pay the sin debt that you owe and that I owe that I can't possibly pay on my own. And God knew that, and that's why he sent Jesus, in order that it might be possible for me to be reconciled to him. Do you know that, Jesus? Do you say that's who he is? I pray that you do. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the kind attention of these people. I think sometimes we take it for granted that people will come in here and sit and listen as we talk for 35 or 40 minutes. But God, we recognize that this message that we talk about today on Palm Sunday, that Palm Sunday indeed is the great divider. It separates the fans from the fanatics, from those people that are just simply in love with their idea of Jesus to those people that have a saving relationship with Jesus Christ. God, there's no doubt in my mind that there will be people in this auditorium that one year from now, they will not be with us on this planet. And so, God, I pray that you would cause each one of us individually to be aware of the fact that it's what we decide now about who Jesus is that determines ultimately where we spend eternity. And I pray that we would end up on the right side of the gospel, placing our trust in Christ alone, enjoying the relationship that we were created to have. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.